check out my new book, Reach All Readers at reachallreaders.com. When you pre-order, you'll get special access to my Science of Reading mini course. Learn more at reachallreaders.com. Hello, Anna Geiger here from The Measured Mom, back with another episode in our old and new summer series, which is quickly coming to a close. This episode came out last year initially when I interviewed Lindsay Kemeny. She talked to us about how she went from balance to structured literacy, particularly after learning that her son had dyslexia and trying to find a way to help him. As you're listening to this, you may know that Lindsay recently came out with a book, and I'll be interviewing her about that coming up next week. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Today, I'm excited to interview Lindsay Kemeny as part of her Balanced to Structure Literacy series. I first found Lindsay on her blog, The Learning Spark, and she is now doing a podcast with some other educators called Literacy Talks. Welcome, Lindsay. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So I know that I first heard you speak on the Amplify podcast, and you talked about how you were a balanced literacy teacher, and then when your one of your children really struggled to learn to read and eventually you found out it was dyslexia, it really changed your viewpoint. So you, can you talk to us a little bit about your early experience in teaching reading and balanced literacy and then how that moved into something different? Absolutely. Uh, I was heavily trained in balanced literacy in uh, my early years of teaching and then in college as well. And teaching reading was always my favorite thing. So I used to confidently just say, oh, balanced literacy is the best way to teach reading. And really, it's the only way that I knew, you know. Mm -hmm. And so when I think back to those early years of teaching for me, I really feel like it was really kind of foggy. Like it was just this hazy landscape where somehow, you know, I didn't really fully understand what it took for the students to learn how to read, but I just kept, you know, we just kept plodding through our leveled readers and then somehow, okay, we're done with all these readers. We'll go to the next level and we'll go through those and just, you know, and there were always these students that struggled and I, you know, I, I don't feel like I really did I didn't have a lot of clarity for what they needed and how I could help them. Um, but I still love teaching reading and I loved the whole idea of just, you know, being surrounded with literature and reading to children and by children and with children. Um, but there were a lot of students I, I didn't realize that I wasn't helping, you know, and I didn't really realize it until later. So I stopped teaching um I taught for second grade for five years, and then I stopped teaching to stay home with my children. And then I returned to teaching about, I guess, five, six years ago. And it was that first year back that I was teaching kindergarten. And so there was, you mentioned my son. So my son was in second grade at this time. I guess it was five years ago. <laughs> I was teaching my son at this time. And so, and there were, I mean, I was teaching kindergarten and then my son was in second grade. And so there were a couple things happening that same year that started to make me question the ways that I had been taught. So the first thing is it was my first year teaching kindergarten. And I was so excited to bring these kids back to my small group table and say, you know, now we've <laughs> learned these letters. Let me show you how you can read. Mm -hmm. And but the books I had to give them were those predictable, you know, repetitive texts. So I found myself having to say, oh, wait, oh, you can't sound this one out. You know, look at the picture. <laughs> Does it give you a clue? And that's the first time it really like didn't sit well with me because I thought, wait a minute, I'm not giving them like this is not I'm giving them the wrong impression of what reading is. Right. And 
I had used all those strategies before and I never thought anything of it. So I remember uh, when I taught second grade, a parent coming to me kind of concerned saying, well, they're just looking at the picture and they're figuring out the words by looking at the picture. And I remember saying, yes, that's what good readers do. They look at the picture to figure out the words, you know? (laughs) Yes, I know. (laughs) Because that's just like, yeah, that was just like ingrained in me, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's just what I was taught so many times. And I was just parroting that back. And then when I was teaching those kindergartners is when I was kind of started to say, wait, yeah, they're not reading, they're guessing. And then my son was diagnosed with dyslexia that year. And that was, you know, I I just couldn't figure out why I couldn't help him. I knew he was struggling to read from the time he was little. And he had a really hard time learning the letters. Um, I I had so many concerns and I did all the things I was taught with balanced Mm -hmm. literacy. None of it was working. Mm -hmm. And so really once I started diving into dyslexia and what do dyslexics need to read? What does the brain do when it's learning to read? That brought me to what everyone needs when learning to read. And that's when I came to what we now call the science of reading, this knowledge. So how did that work in terms of shifting what you were doing in your classroom? Was this a very slow process or was that, did that cause friction among other people who were used to you doing it a certain way? It was definitely a gradual process, and even at first, I didn't, even though I had those things happening my first kindergarten year where I was kind of questioning some of these practices, I didn't really connect it with balanced literacy at first, and I, and I was learning about dyslexia, and I was in this dyslexia parent group, I remember that summer after my son was in second grade, and someone was asking about a certain program. And another parent said, well, that's balanced literacy, which is basically the worst thing for our our kids. And I was like, what? And that just balanced literacy, but that's the best way to teach reading. I've always thought that was the best way. And so it was kind of this gradual aha where I was piecing together the frustrations I had, you know, that year teaching kindergarten with the things I had been taught and understanding everything, you know, really, I guess, the definition of balanced literacy. And so then I just, I, it was gradual changes. And even now, I feel like I'm every year doing things a little bit differently um, and applying new things. So I think one of the first changes I made was getting rid of the repetible, repetitive, predictable text for, you know, those kindergartners, just no more, none of those. And we're going to use decodable text. And I really want them to practice those sound symbol correspondences, you know, and really develop automaticity with that. So that was probably the first change. And then making sure I'm um, teaching phonics in an explicit, systematic manner, you know. So I think those two things were the top because those were the big, biggest weaknesses, I think, with balanced literacy. And then it was just kind of improving and refining things along the way. I know that for me, um, hearing that there could be something wrong with balanced literacy concerned me because like you said, I loved reading aloud to kids. I loved surrounding them with good books. And so I think for a lot of balanced literacy teachers, that is their concern. Like if I switch over to whatever this is called structured literacy, it's not going to be fun anymore for the kids or for me. Can you speak to that and your experience in terms of maybe concerns you might have had and how it played out? Yeah, well, I think it's kind of a misconception where a lot of people think, oh, now it's just the structured literacy and we're just, you know, going to do phonics all the time and what about everything else, which is is not 
you know, that's kind of where the biggest difference, I would say, between balanced literacy and maybe structured literacy is the phonics piece. But there's other, when we're talking about the science of reading, we're not just talking about phonics. There's a lot of other things that we're talking about. And so, yes, we still want those rich read aloud experiences. And we want to introduce our... Um, and expose our students to other texts, not just decodable texts. They need to ex- be exposed to all different things. So I think there's just kind of this misconception. And I think really, and phonics doesn't have to be boring. So you can do a little, a lot of things to make it exciting and you can show your enthusiasm for it, which is kind of, you know, infectious. My students know that I love phonics time and I get really excited and I call myself a word nerd mm-hmm. and they love that too and and then that's just not like I said that's just not the only thing we're going to do yes we're going to address you know vocabulary and comprehension and we're going to um, work on fluency and of course phonemic awareness is in there too so there's just lots of different components to consider I think sometimes um, I'm thinking that people that switch from level to decodable especially in kindergarten it's a little hard at first because with de- leveled, it just seems like they're reading so fluently so quickly because they're just using the patterns to finish the sentences. Where with decodable, they have to really work hard. Can you speak to that in your experience and what that's like for you? And when it, when do you t- tend to see them get over that hump of it just being really hard through every word? Yeah, that it's so true. Like as a kindergarten teacher, it's so much easier to listen to them read a repetitive, <laughs> predictable text where you're just like, yes, you got it. Turn the page. Yes. And they're not really, not really uh, reading, you know, but they've memorized it and it's, it's so great. And then, but you give them a decodable and sometimes the language is just off enough where that, you know, they can't guess. So they're just struggling through sounding out and you're like, oh my goodness, we sounded this word out three times already (laughs) in the book and they're sounding it out again. (laughs) It's definitely, but that is what has to happen. Yep. And that is allowing the brain to map those, you know, sound letter sequences so they can learn. And um, and so they can retrieve those later. You know, they'll they'll map it and they'll be able to um, remember those words later. So it's it's like it's a process. And I love when I'm reading with the students, I'll give them a lot of opportunities to read those um, words over and over. So I like to do a strategy um, I learned from Nora Chabazi, who's the founder of Ebly. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, yep. but mm-hmm. she has this strategy called teacher read, student read, teacher read back. <laughs> it's just like what, and I will do this in small groups with my students where like the little kindergartners will read a couple sentences and I'm like, great, now listen to me. And they put their finger under the words and they listen while I read the same couple sentences and then they go back and do it those same ones again by themselves and this kind of helps them uh, well it it definitely allows more exposure to those words and then the second time they can read a little smoother because it's a you know a repeat of what they just read and I I'm teaching second grade now and I do that with my second graders as well except it's maybe a paragraph or a couple paragraphs so I can they read it they do that productive struggle I model it and then they read it again. And I think that's something that helps that process when they're just kind of reading sound by sound. Mm-hmm. But I even had a student this year in second grade starting the year. She could only read three correct words in a minute. And every word was slowly sounding out mm-hmm. each sound. And, you know, we just had lots of practice for her to read aloud 
course, our phonics, working on that phonemic awareness too. And now she's almost to grade level. I mean, wow. it's no more sound by sound. It's so exciting. And That's awesome. I just thought she started at three. I think she's at like 70 words correct oh per minute right now, which is awesome. We got to be at 87 at the end of the year. So we're trying. It's like my final push. It's yeah. what, into March right now to try to get her there. But it's it's awesome to see that growth. That is incredible. What would you say to somebody, because I've, I've received these emails, um, who say, well, there's no way I'm having my kids read decodable books. They are so boring. They don't make any sense. And they're not going to like it. They're not going to like it. They're not going to want to read them. Well, uh, they actually, well, first I'll say you, there's a difference in decodable books. And yeah, there's some that are just awful, but there's also some that are wonderful and they're engaging and they have, you know, beautiful pictures and storylines and they're just high quality. So I would say, you know, maybe you need to look at a different brand, a different type of decodable because there are some really great ones out there. And second, it is so it is so exciting to see how students get so proud of themselves when they're reading those when they can actually read the the text. And I remember this little boy in my kindergarten class a few years ago that, you know, I gave him this little decodable um, book. It's one of the first times he, you know, it was at the beginning of the year, one of the first times he's actually reading. And he read the first page and he looked up and was like, Mrs. Kemeny, I'm actually reading the words. (laughs) And he just said it like so loud and so excited. I mean, it was just, I can still remember how he said that. And it was just... It was just the most amazing moment. Yeah. And so I think, you know, you're, you don't want to deny them that, uh, that experience, right? Because, you know, I've seen there's a lot of students that there's some students that it's those, deco- those repetitive texts, it's not going to matter. They can, they can pick it up. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the large majority, you know, they'll still pick up how to read by doing that. But there's going to, there's a large majority that will not get proficient without Mm -hmm. really having that explicit practice with the sound symbol correspondences that you're teaching. So, you know, getting some high quality decodable text, also realizing that it's not the only thing the students have to be exposed to. Mm -hmm. And in kindergarten, I'm still reading them, you know, great literature, and we're having discussions and talking about it. I'm teaching second grade now. And we're definitely transitioning out of decodables because they're like training wheels and Mm -hmm. you want to get rid of them as soon as you can. So Mm -hmm. I have about two students right now who still need decodable text, but everyone else, you know, is fine without it. So can you talk to us a little bit about your experience with your son, you know, how you figured out it was dyslexia, if you even knew what dyslex- much about dyslexia, and then what you've been doing to help him learn to read. Yeah, so I, you know, we had that, I, I, I just had no idea what dyslexia was. So we did so decided to do some outside testing because we couldn't figure out why, you know, he was struggling to learn to read so much. And so I just remember when that doctor told me, you know, it looks like dyslexia, I was just completely shocked and I was thinking, dyslexia, mm-hmm. what's that? Isn't that just where you see backwards? That's not what he has. And which is not what <laughs> dyslexia is. That's that's a huge myth that they, they see backwards because that's mm-hmm. not true. Yes. Uh, and so I just and I just remember going to tell his second grade teacher and saying, so they think he has dyslexia. And she's like, oh, I guess we need to change some things in his IEP. And I'm like, yeah. And it just kind of 
hit me. Why don't I know anything about this? And then I started searching and researching. And, you know, when I found out it's the most commonly diagnosed learning disability, I got really upset and I was really angry because I thought if it's really common, why haven't I been taught about this? Why didn't I learn about it in college? Why don't I have professional development on this? How come no other teachers in my school know anything about it? You know, so it was just, Mm -hmm. it was frustrating. And so it took me, you know, right away, the end of second grade, we got a tutor, someone who was familiar with dyslexia and uh, used a program that was supposed to be good for kids with dyslexia. And probably that was my biggest regret is that we only did it twice a week for that first year, but it was really expensive. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's what I could afford. Yeah. And then I ended up, uh, you know, it took me a year before I felt comfortable and ready enough to work with him myself. And I had done a lot of reading Mm -hmm. and then I also had gone to trainings. Like I had an Orton Gillingham training and some others. And so after that year, the end of third grade, I took over his tutoring and I worked with him every day and over the summer every day. And that's really when we started to see progress. So I wish we had started it earlier. But what what would you point to as being the game changer? Like what what made it click? Well, it was pretty gradual and I think it was just the intensity mm-hmm. and you know, I was doing a mm-hmm. combination of, you know, explicit phonics, which I, I never think he got Well, I just think he needed a lot more exposure, you know, to phonics and practice and really a lot of practice applying it. So not phonics in isolation, but applying it in text. You know, he had practiced early on with with decodables, but then we got to more complex text and we would practice that every night we Mm -hmm. would read together. He'd read a sentence, I read a sentence, he read a sentence, I read a sentence until he could do more and more and gosh, like the last three years we've been reading Harry Potter together and he reads a page, I read a page. Oh, yeah. But it was great having that (laughs) complex text was really good practice. So, you know, it's, I don't know, it gives me chills when I hear him, you know, decode the word unceremoniously, you know, (laughs) unceremoniously. (laughs) Yes, like it's just exciting. so. So how does he feel about reading now? He loves it. He loves it. And I remember... Oh, man, I remember way back, I guess, he, I guess maybe third grade, the, or maybe that summer, the first time I saw him reading a book independently, and it was, it was a little graphic novel, Dog Man. I don't know if you've heard of those. Oh, yes. But the, my, but my the first time, <laughs> the first time I ever saw him pick up a book and read for fun, and I was just... Oh, I snapped a picture. I was just so excited. I couldn't believe it. And then I remember we went to this uh, like family reunion event, the end of his third grade year. And that, or no, the end of the summer, right before he went into, I guess it was right before he went into fourth grade. And that's when I had, that summer I had really started working with him. And at that event, he introduced himself, said his name and said, I have dyslexia, but I can read fourth grade books. And he was just That's so like cool. so proud, and it was it was really neat. So he actually loves to read. We still read together every night, and then he also does a lot of audiobooks. So, okay. So does he need accommodations in school to help him kind of keep up? Like, do they give him longer Absolutely. for tests and things like that? 
Absolutely. Yes. He's on an IEP. He has a lot of accommodations and his dyslexia is very severe. So his, you know, it's, it's a spectrum and, and along with dyslexia, he has dysgraphia, which is the writing disability and dyscalculia, Mm -hmm. which is the math disability. And then he has very low processing speed and very low working memory along with attention struggles. So I feel like it's just, you know, all of these things. He's got it all. Wow. Yeah. To have all of that and for him to love reading is a big testament to the work you've done with him. That's really exciting. Really exciting. It's It's been great. And it's been quite a, a process with him because he, the same time he was diagnosed with uh, dyslexia, he was diagnosed with depression as well. And that got really bad the end of third grade year. And yeah. I've written a little bit about that. But he, you know, made lots of suicidal comments. He... I, it was just kind of, he said some of the worst things that you never want to hear as a mother. And so to see where he is now is just so amazing because I feel like his ability to read has improved his self-esteem and it's just kind of gradually healed his little heart. So, yes, I remember you sharing that. That's what really stuck, stuck with me on that, on the Amplify podcast interview that you gave. And it, it really really helps you think about it because I know when I taught, like maybe I would have heard when I was balanced literacy and I didn't know much about dyslexia, I would have heard, well, this way won't work with dyslexia, but that's just a few kids. It's okay. It works for most kids. And I probably would have just dismissed it. But when you actually connect with somebody who, who has a child with dyslexia and you realize this is very personal and real. And like you said, it, um, the longer you wait to take care of it, the more effect it has on their self-worth and all kinds of things. And it just, compounds itself and it's so important that we do something about it early what would you say to a parent who suspects dyslexia in maybe a kindergartner or first grader what what should be their first step I think the the first thing I would tell a parent is to get some tutoring outside tutoring because Mm -hmm. you know I wouldn't wait for the school maybe to figure it out and I wouldn't get just any tutor but I would make sure to get someone who is familiar with dyslexia and you know what we coin the science of reading but kind of understands structured literacy so that would be my my first thing Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's a good a good tip because that's something that may be a little bit more in their control because working yeah. with the school can take a long time, right? Yes, exactly. What would you say to somebody who is just getting started? Do you have any special books or podcasts or things that you recommend to get them going? Sure. So one of my favorite books I think is really great for beginners that just came out like a year ago is called The Art and Science of Teaching Primary Reading by okay. Christopher Such. I think that's a great one. Uh, I also have, I created for my master's program, I created a PD uh, based on the science of reading. And it's just meant to be a very beginner step, but I have modules for like each of the five main components and it's just free. So I can, I can send you that link if you want. For sure. Yeah. That'd be great. And I think that's a nice way to get started. But like I said, it's not everything. (laughs) There's so much to learn. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have that. And yeah, I do have, um, I just started a podcast with two of my friends where we're just all big literacy nerds. So we love to talk all things reading. So if you want to listen to that, uh, it's called Literacy Talks and it's sponsored by Reading Horizons. So that's on all like your podcast platforms. I'll be sure to link to all those things in the show notes. Is there anything else you want people to know before we sign off? Um, no, maybe I'll, well, I'll just say think baby steps when you're getting started. It can be a little overwhelming to think of to make all these changes. So I would just say baby steps, start learning and 
you know, add in one thing at a time. And I have a, a specific blog post I've written with just some first steps that I would recommend if you're just getting started with the science of reading, I can send you that as well. For sure. I will definitely link that. Well, thanks so much. I'm sure a lot of people got a lot out of this, especially if they have a child they think may have dyslexia, learning from you and that there's a light at the end of the tunnel is very exciting. Once the right help is given, success can occur. So thanks so much for sharing that. That's really encouraging. Yeah. And it was really nice to talk with you, Lindsay. Yeah, it was great to be on. So thanks for inviting me. You bet. Thank you so much for joining me for this interview with Lindsay. You can find access to her free PD, her blog posts, and her podcast in the show notes, which you can find at themeasuredmom.com forward slash episode 83. We're taking a week off next week for July 4th, but we'll see you after that. That's all for this episode of Triple R Teaching. For more educational resources, visit Anna at her home base, themeasuredmom.com, and join our teaching community. We look forward to helping you reflect, refine, and recharge on the next episode of Triple R Teaching. 